0: Hello and welcome to The Hive podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalina Nahai, and some very special guests as we explore the pressing question of how we can support one another to envision and create a more flourishing future for all. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit... NatalinaHigh.com forward slash The Hive podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out Natalinahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Yannick Schoenhoven, a regenerative farmer, co founder of the Regeneration Academy. Coordinator of the Regeneration Festival and trainer for the Regenerative Agriculture Research Programme in Murcia. Holding a master's degree in environmental sciences, Yannick has worked with farmers throughout southern Spain for several years as part of Commonland and Alvilal, two projects that aim to initiate, catalyse and enable large scale and long term restoration initiatives. With a shared mission to transform degraded landscapes into thriving ecosystems and communities, Both of these projects take a practical, holistic approach to developing viable solutions based on social and ecological needs, science and entrepreneurship. At Commonland, they've been working tirelessly since 2013 to build a universal proof of concept that brings farmers, landowners, entrepreneurs, communities, nature organisations and legislators together to create real returns on investment per hectare. Called The Four Returns, this framework is capable of initiating, organising and following through on large-scale long-term restoration initiatives that integrate ecology, land use and business. And it's a framework we'll be exploring in greater depth a little bit later. I'm really delighted to be having this particular conversation today, not least because I've seen the work they're doing on La Junquera Farm in Murcia and I've experienced their passion, determination and open-heartedness firsthand. I'm also excited to be sharing this with you because it offers a real practical example of the transformation that can be achieved at a large scale when we're able to envision a different, more regenerative path forward and work collaboratively with others to make it happen. I hope you feel as inspired by this conversation as I did. Yannick, it's a pleasure to be chatting with you virtually this time. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. We've had
1: a lot of rain on the farm, so um, we're waiting for it to uh, stop and so so we can start planting.
0: I think this is one of the things, isn't it, with with farming, we forget for those of us who have no contact with farming or vegetable gardens on a tiny weenie scale, that we're completely at the mercy of the environment, of the weather changing patterns and whatever happens around us. Not much we can do. Yes. Unless the weather's good. Totally.
1: So at this moment, for the last six weeks, we've been trying to find other things to do. So we've been doing a lot of the emails that were behind and other (laughs) things that uh, require indoor work. Um, And now, hopefully soon, uh, we'll have the sun back and we Mm. can start uh, the work on the land again.
0: Mm. So... We first met back in October 2021 when you were running your first ever Regeneration Academy one-week introductory crash course at La Junquera, uh, which is a regenerative farm down in southern Spain in Murcia. And so I want to start there. Could you explain for folks who don't know what it is, what regenerative agriculture means and what you aim to do at La Junquera Farm?
1: Yes, of course. So La Junquera is a regenerative organic farm. Um, It's one of the biggest in uh, the south of Spain. And what we're trying to do there is we're trying to restore degraded land. This area is very known for its desertification. Uh, the soil quality is quite bad. Uh, there's been a lot of overgrazing, over tilling, overuse of the land. And there's not been a lot of inputs in a positive sense in the land. So, what we are trying to do is recover the soil fertility. Uh, the water resources that the land has, and also the biodiversity, which also, due to monoculture, has actually disappeared.
0: Wow! So I think one of the interesting things when when people talk about this is how so many of these different elements are interconnected. So if you're talking about the fertility of the soil, and you're talking about you know getting rid of or finding alternatives to monocropping or bringing hedgerows back, you know what are some of the things that you found? maybe most surprising interventions that maybe you engaged in that had positive knock-on effects in the process of regenerating this land?
1: Yes. So we've been working quite hard on on trying out many, many different things. So um, we've made some ponds. um, And while when we made those ponds, within a month, we had frogs back. (laughs) And you could think, frogs, Why, why is that so interesting? But if you think that... In the five kilometers around us, there's no water resources. Then how do those frogs find these ponds? Uh, How do they get there? So we were quite surprised by how fast life came back. And also to the areas around those ponds, you saw it getting more green. You saw um, a lot of birds coming back, a lot of uh, butterflies, a lot of pollinators as well. Um, And indeed, all those frogs. So it was a very noisy business at some point. (laughs) Yes, so that that was really one thing for us that was very interesting. And the other thing that we found very surprising is that we've made a lot of uh, swales. Those are um, little canals on contour to capture the water when it rains and to stop the erosion uh, and the soil from leaving the field when it rains a lot. And in those swales, we found out that also within a few months, uh, those areas in the, in the fields were used as corridors for animals. Uh, you saw a lot of tracks of uh, wild boar, of deer, oh. <laughs> of foxes, of a lot of tiny mice and other uh, rodents crossing that area. So what you really see is that when you bring back these elements in the, in the landscape, a lot of animals think like, ah, yes, finally, you know, I can cross this piece of land without trouble. I can I can be safe. Mm. And that was very interesting because it wasn't meant for that in the beginning. But now we see that it also really has a, a good effect on the habitat of, of, of those animals.
0: I think one of the things that really struck me when we came to visit the farm and you gave us um, an introduction to how it works and the experiments you've been running was... The degree to which you were, as a team, so open to experimenting, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't, and the kind of knock-on effects of that within the wider agricultural community of people engaging in tests. Like, what would it mean to have land that we till less often? Would it help or hinder? And the other thing I think that was really interesting that, that you've spoken about, and I'd love to dig into it a bit more, is that when it comes to regenerating land it's never going to be a one-size-fits-all, repeatable approach. Like, it's so specific to the particular place, to its location, the terrain that exists there, the weather patterns. So can you talk a little bit about kind of the the mindset or the approach that you bring to a generation?
1: Yeah, so for us, what was most important was to experiment. Um, in the past 10 years, we've done Many, many experiments. <laughs> uh, and I would say the first four years, most of them did not work. Mm. Um, because people say, like, oh, do this, mm. uh, it definitely works. And then you try it, and it doesn't definitely work. It just might work in a certain context, in a certain way. So I think for most farmers, that's also the thing, because people will say, hey, but I have a different soil, I have a different climate. And I have different tools that I can uh, use so you have to work with what you got and you have to work with what you know of your land and then try it out on a small scale see what what happens uh, and then if it works you try it out on a bigger scale. The point is with agriculture is that it's a multiple year process so Mm. You try it out, you have to wait a year to see if it works. But then with that one year, you don't have the definite answer for this. So you have to maybe wait another year to see if it really works. Because maybe it was a good year, maybe it was a bad year, maybe there was a lot of rain, uh, maybe you know there was a lot of sun. The, all those things have, a, have an effect. So you need to see over multiple years what, what will happen. And I think also that's why change in farming um, takes some time. Because we do need to see the results of what we're trying to do. For example, we had this uh, um, experiment in which we tried to leave a ground cover all year round in the pistachio field. And in the summer, we are like, oof, all those pistachios look like they're dying. Mm. Um, This is not good. Mm. So then what do we do? Because... In our theory that we've read and the people that we talk talked to, it's like leaving a ground cover and not tilling is the best thing that you can do for the soil. Mm. But uh, you do have to look at what your land can take. How is your organic matter? How uh, is the rainfall? Uh, how big are the trees that you try this with? And in our case, what we found out then is that we tried it with trees that were too young. They couldn't handle that much competition yet. Uh, our soil was too bad. so there was not enough, were not enough nutrients available in the soil to both feed the ground cover and the tree. Mm. And also the organic matter levels were so low that um, we had a lot of uh, crusting, so which meant that there was no oxygen flowing. Uh, to the roots of the trees so there you were know, all these things that we beforehand did not know about and then found out the hard way because in the end we had around 500 trees dying Oof. which is quite a expensive experiment mm-hmm. but then after that we found out okay that did not work but there must be a way that we can make this happen that reduces the competition but we can still have some ground cover. So in the end, what we could do was have vegetation strips, which is not the full ground cover. So we still would till a bit around the tree to give it some advantages Mm -hmm. uh, over the weeds. (laughs) And we had the the grasses growing in the middle. And that does seem to work. And now that is what we're repeating in other fields as well.
0: It's fascinating hearing you talk about this from a perspective of trial and error because i think one of the things that you mentioned there is is the cost you know we the average person of which i include myself you know we go to the shop we buy a pepper or a bag of pistachios and we're so used to buying it in that context that we don't necessarily know the whole story behind where it's come from what's gone into creating food that we rely on all year round to be able to just access pick up and then eat and so i wonder When it comes to expense, because obviously there's a lot of farmers, especially in southern Spain, I mean, it's almost the kind of vegetable basket of Europe and the exports from Spain are huge. But there are so many farmers in Spain that I imagine don't have huge amounts of money that they can spend on, on these experiments or if they have a very bad year, you know, what do they do? So many businesses, I mean, farms are also businesses, go bankrupt. So what are your thoughts around how... Farmers can change the way that they're farming when they don't have access to great finance. And I also kind of want to weave in here the collaborative approach you guys take, because you also work a lot with farmers to say, look, this is what's working for us. This isn't what's working. And so let's talk about that side of things, like the expense of it and also the collaborative nature of the movement and helping one another out uh, with resources and knowledge.
1: Yeah, I think experiments are always expensive until they work. And if they work, uh, they should at some point either give some money back or uh, cover the cost or, or something like that. Or, but yeah, there is always a cost to this. And, and I think we've had the uh, possibility also with uh, funding from outside to do some very big experiments, uh, which then we could also share again through the Regeneration Academy with other farmers and other people and tell them, like, hey, this, in our case, doesn't work, or maybe it doesn't have to cost this much money if you try it this way. So, indeed, it's also sharing, I think, a lot of knowledge of these trials and making sure that other people don't have to make the same very expensive mistakes. They can make small mistakes that don't cost that much of money. Um, But then also, in the regenerative organic movement, uh, the the income of your produce is a bit higher, uh, so maybe the the amount of produce is lower, but your price per product is higher. So at that that way you can balance it out, and you don't have to lose income necessarily because you sell it at a higher price mm. and for a lot better quality, of course. So that's a choice that every farmer has to make. You can either go for quantity and and go for as much as possible and then probably you have to sell at a lower price or you go for the quality and for organic and you can sell it at a bit of a higher price and therefore you balance out these costs. Mm. But yeah, there is definitely, in most cases, there is a cost to to trying out new things. Um, But on the other hand, for example, reducing tilling, it also saves costs. Because if you till less, you have less tractor costs, you have less man-hour costs. So in the end, also that if you find the right balance, will save you uh, some money as well.
0: Mm.
1: Which is, of course, the the final idea is that uh, this would balance out in a way that uh, you have a more financially sustainable farm in the long term. Because what you see now is that many farms in the south of Spain they can already not produce anymore because the land is too desertified, the water is gone, the soil is gone, it's not worth anything anymore. Mm. So if you go from thinking about that to having a, a healthy farm in 10 years, then those costs are actually worth it. So it's also thinking in a different time scale, because maybe in a year it's only costs, for us to do these experiments and to keep investing in the land in that way and try to stop erosion, improve the soil quality. But if you think about the long term, that in 10 years, our land is still uh, valuable and can still produce food, while maybe in other areas here, it is not possible anymore, then uh, it, it is, of course, worth it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing as well, and I'd love you to to explain a bit about this too, is is the these different models for working with farmers or getting, as a consumer who buys food, getting your food direct from farmers, there are such such interesting models coming up now that mean that the farmer doesn't have to lose as much money or go through as many intermediaries. So can you tell us a little bit about crowdfunding and maybe the story of the um I think it's the story of the orange tree? Yes,
1: yes. So crowd farming is a really interesting example um, because They work directly with farmers and they sell beforehand. So what they do is on their webpage is they say, hey, do you want to uh, adopt an orange tree or adopt an almond tree? And when the harvest is done, we'll send you your produce. Uh, That way, the farmer knows all of of his uh, produce is already sold. He feels a lot more safe. And uh, the end consumer is a lot more involved also in the process. So from both sides, this is a lot more fun, I would say. Mm -hmm. And what you also prevent is that these fruits go through a lot of intermediaries that take also part uh, part of this income. So for the farmer, it's a better deal. And for the end consumer, he knows what he's getting from who and from which farm and with how this actually is produced, which I think is also a really nice way of eating your food, let's say, no? That you actually know, hey, these are the oranges from my orange tree or these are the almonds that, you know, I support this farmer uh, to produce these almonds like this. And I hope that we go more and more towards local uh, eating and also that this is, again, valued because in the supermarket you have no clue what, what you're eating and from who and, and how this is produced you know if they say it's lettuce from spain like like is it produced in a sustainable way or is it or is it actually extracting all the water and and leaving a desert you know that's not what anybody wants i think so it's good to know
0: mm. and i think there there's the kind of the shifting of relationship with one's food because if you've got access to you know images of the tree or the plot where you know you've supported the farmer to be able to predict their income, so they've got more security, they're less precarious, and you've got monthly updates with my sort of consumer psychology hat, it's also this this sense of how much uh, reminding or how many points of contact you need between between the customer and the farmer for them to feel a real sense of attachment and connection to that tree. I think in your studies, it was something like a, about a month, every month or so, you get an update, and that creates this sense of attachment. And so, it's also about restoring our relationship with food and the idea that we can actually be part of a more creative solution that we're not just consuming and that's all we're good for. It's also feeling like we're supporting someone, that we're doing something back. And actually, I think, you know, with a lot of the cultural, economic, and political changes that we need to make in order for our systems to become more regenerative more broadly. One of the interesting pieces there is around education, around giving people the opportunity to connect with food differently. And so I wonder, can you tell us a little bit about how the Regeneration Academy, which is quite specific and attracts um, people with certain mindsets, (laughs) I think. Can you tell us about what it aims to do and how it works with education, changing mindsets, putting people into contact with the land in a different way? Because it's really quite remarkable what you guys do.
1: Yeah, so we actually started from a point that we were on this farm and there were constantly people coming in and we were not feeling that we had enough time to provide them with all the context they needed <laughs> to actually understand what was going on mm-hmm. uh, because it's quite complex. It's a complex farm, it's a complex territory and, and people had a lot of questions and we were like, we need to come up with a way to, to really help them but that they can also help us in this transition. So that's when we started with the Regeneration Academy and it, and it actually was meant as a tool to use education as a tool to regenerate the land. So we said, okay, we have many questions. We have many uncertainties on our land that we don't know how to solve or how this works or what kind of effects, uh, for example, a hedge has on the land or on the insects. And we just don't have enough manpower and and time to to do all of this but we do see the need in transforming as fast as possible because if we can transform and we have these examples and we can share this then other people can also do it a lot easier so we saw this need and we saw that there was also a really big demand from people to want to get their hands dirty understand from up close what is going on And how they could use all this information in their personal uh, context as well. So we started with uh, with, uh, students uh, who came to the farm for four months Mm -hmm. and who still come to the farm for four months uh, to do their research on topics that uh, we beforehand would uh, uh, discuss. And uh, in the meantime, they would also help on the land. So they would learn how long do things take. How do I plant trees? Uh, if you would ask from someone to make a swill or to plant aromatics, what does that actually mean? You know, how, how, how much time does that take? Um, and how does it work to live on a farm? Because also many people have this very romantic idea of <laughs> living on the farm and, and living the rural life. But what does it actually mean? No, people are not very used to, for example, oh, it's already raining for a month. What yeah. do I do yeah. now? You know, I cannot go out, what do I do? So we really wanted them to fully experience and emerge in in, in farm life and and understand all these different aspects of it. And in the meantime, come up with solutions that uh, we did not have yet. So I think by now we've implemented actually 20 experiments that students have researched successfully and we've actually scaled up many of the things that they have uh, researched. And then there was also a lot of demand from from other people that were not students that said like, hey, but I do really want to learn more, but I don't have four months, which is very normal. So we said, okay, let's also work on a one-week experience in which we go very in-depth, very fast, and we show as much as possible, and we share as open as we can all these things that we've done and, and tried. Um, to also give all those people a, a sense of uh, what's happening here on this farm and in this territory. and now actually we uh, we have different programs for different uh, for different people. We have a program for local people. we have a program for unemployed young people from the area that come here for a few months and do a sort of traineeship. and hopefully when everything goes well and they are doing well and we're happy. We could offer them a job, so very probably now one of those guys will uh, in the in the autumn will get a job at the farm as well. Mm. So we're really trying to um, work the the challenges from many different sides and help uh, people both locally and internationally. And uh, I think the most important thing here is to just share all the knowledge openly. Like we're not in. Uh, competition with anybody you know we're all trying to do the same so we really want to 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 share as much as we can and and also that people come to us and and have new ideas and we're very happy with it Uh, and we'll try it out and then uh, see if it works so yeah it's it's a really nice experience and also to to gain this network of of other like-minded people um, uh, both here and also uh, in Europe and then try out things together. That um, yeah, that really makes us feel not alone mm. in uh, in this uh, fight, as we say.
0: <laughs> it's funny because when we're talking about all the different things that need to change in order to create a more regenerative approach to life in general, of which regenerative agriculture is a really key, well, one of the most key aspects. I'm really struck by people's willingness to collaborate and share knowledge, and. Part of me has this sort of sense of recognition to the way it was back in the early kind of dot-com boom days when technology was suddenly something which everyone had a computer and you had access to the internet and then social media made it possible to collaborate and share. And there's something of this moment now that feels very familiar to me in the sense of optimism and possibility. And yet there's also the other side I think we're more aware of what can happen when when knowledge gets cut off or, for instance, the parallel with the tech world would be with big organisations uh, dominating certain spaces, whether it's search, social media, etc. And so I wonder with with the work that you're doing in regeneration, can you tell us a little bit about common lands projects that look to find ways for us not to kind of end up in the same sort of situation in agricultural terms? So rather than having one or two massive companies that own a lot of land, and there are already examples of oligarchs and people such as that who already have swathes of land but the things that people can do to make sure that we retain common land to be able to share for people who have less financial resource can you tell us a bit about that
1: yeah we are working uh with this company or organization i should say that is common land uh that works uh, through the four returns so they've developed this framework that's really beautiful i think and it's a framework in which they say If you want to do large-scale landscape restoration, you cannot only focus on uh, the natural part. Because if you focus only on the natural part without focusing on the financial part, on the social part, and on the inspiration, you're not going to make it. Hmm. Because in the end, you need people to keep it up. You need people to care for it. You need people to protect it. And otherwise, uh, within five years, a forest that you plant very happily will be cut down again by someone who does not care so much about those things, so I really like the way of com- that common land says okay we we're going to work the whole system we're going to work the whole system and we're going to do this in for example now they they've done it in Spain they're working in Australia they're working in south Africa they're working in the Netherlands uh, and they have a few other projects going on at the moment as well, and they say with this with this framework, we're going to talk to the local community and we're going to ask them if this is something that they would like to pick up. So what happened in, in, in the south of Spain is that uh, al came to existence, which is a, an association of now 350 farmers wow. that have all committed to do regenerative agriculture mm-hmm. and to support uh, this land, large-scale landscape restoration. So we we work a lot with them as well. And what what the idea is is that we need to also bring back this inspiration. So we need to, to give people the feeling that their land has value. This land has value. This land is important. This land is beautiful. This land is worth fighting for. Um, we need to share this also with the kids. We need to bring back uh, youth in this uh, countryside, which is mainly 65 plus people. Mm. So we also need to share it with them. Like, hey, you can find jobs here. You can live here. You can have a dignified life. You can uh, have uh, interesting uh, projects, friends. Uh, that does exist. And for that, we're also hosting a lot of workshops. So another part of this is the, is the social uh, return, as uh, Commonland says it, which is also a big part of bringing back knowledge bringing back skills that in a countryside where there's very few people left has not been the main uh, focus in a while Mm. so also bringing back those those things so that people can actually apply for these jobs or even develop uh, businesses themselves and by doing that and also bringing back uh, like financial possibilities so if people have a great idea there might be funding for it. Or if uh, some land needs to be restored, uh, people can apply for a grant to to ask for the the seeds to to seed the land or uh, to plant the trees or to do all kinds of things. So from basically the problem is attacked from many different sides. And what Commonland also says, this is not a a five-year thing. We need to think long term, you know, because uh, if we don't, then in five years people go back the way it was and you're not changing the system. So they say, okay, we we look for a 20 year uh, period and in those 20 years we're going to change this whole landscape. Um, And I think they're doing quite a good job at it. So I think there's a lot of people coming back to the region. There's more families living here now. Um, there's a lot of jobs created also in the region for related to regenerative agriculture. And um, we've hosted some festivals <laughs> so, to, uh, to bring back the inspiration and uh, the fun of it also, yeah. because I think many times these things get really heavy. Yeah. And very, you know, oh, what can I do? I don't you know it's too big the the problems are too big so this festival that we organized actually on this farm a few years ago really brought back a lot of this inspiration and a lot of the fun of it mm-hmm. as well and 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 connecting people from from all over europe together and local people and people were like oh wow are these all these people they actually want to come here yeah. to this land to is this then interesting for people? Is this, Does this have value for people? Mm. And I think that also really changed the mindset. They were like, wow, okay, so we do have something to offer.
0: Mm.
1: It's not all uh, nothing, you know? And I think that really, really helped, and it, it created a lot of uh, good good vibes amongst everyone. And people got connected with their their produce, their local produce. They were selling their, their tomatoes to the people on the festival and uh, the wine. And, and, and it was a lot of fun. Um, we planted uh, trees to the beat. So there was some <laughs> DJs standing in the field, like planting. And it was really just a really amazing, amazing experience. Yeah, so I, I, I really think that that all these... Different people, different organisations really help to bring back also that part uh, to this region.
0: And so the four turns, the inspiration, bringing back the excitement and the possibility and the creative imagination, the social side, which is bringing the people back, the natural side, which is obviously uh, looking after the land, and then the financial side and putting that within a larger framework of um, a longer time span. Saying, okay, this is something that's more of a legacy project of stewardship and of care. Uh, it suddenly reframes the whole thing as something you can engage with over the course of a life and not just a quick fix. And so I wonder, what are some of the biggest challenges that you've encountered in changing to a different system of farming?
1: I think here what we've encountered is that as a manager of the land, you can want a lot of things, Mm -hmm. but you also need to convince uh, the workers that work with you uh, because if they drive the tractor and you're not around and they're secretly just going straight lines and, and think key line is is something weird, then, then you're not going to fix this problem. No. So we've had a couple of challenges of some shepherds uh, just grazing over the newly reforested land. Oh, no. And, uh yes. <laughs> Even though we've said it a few times, but he said, Yeah, no, it didn't look good anyway. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Uh, That's
0: just, just it's just starting. It hasn't had a chance to grow big.
1: It literally took us all winter with oh. twenty people planting ten thousand trees. So Oof. thank you. Um or someone that likes the land to be clean uh tilling over our hedges because right. yes it's nicer if it's clean than that there's stuff planted yeah. um so we had to convince him again like hey again this was a lot of work Oof. it's a it's a big pity that you tilled over it and then he says yeah but i thought it just looks better if it's like all tilled oh. like no that's so disappointing please <laughs> help us <laughs> we're trying um so yeah it's 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 definitely not always easy mm. um and 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 yeah this like the the systems change in people's minds also takes quite a long time because they've been used to doing things a certain way uh all their life and then we come with this like funny weird uh questions and 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 Things that they have to do, and they're just like, you you don't understand, <laughs> um, you know. Uh, so yes, we are working on many different levels to to uh, to change this. Um, but yeah, I think the, that's that's a big challenge, or the, the the understanding of why this is important. Um, I think in the whole territory, and I think everywhere, that's that's I think the first step, um, and then I think a second step is if you understand why it's so important you do need some money to start doing certain things and you need also maybe some money to um yeah fail some experiments because they are going to fail mm-hmm. and it is not always going to be uh, simple and easy so that would be i think the second um Barrier for people to to continue. For example, everybody now in this territory, or many people of Alvalo at least, they know uh, adding compost or or some compost to your land is good for the soil fertility and for the organic matter of your soil. But even though we know that this is very good, compost is very expensive. So then that is the second barrier that will uh, stop. People from continuing with this, or um, yeah, do only a very tiny bit of their farm, and that—that's a pity. I think uh, I don't know how to solve that, but we are working at the moment on a vermicompost uh, system, uh, and we hope that um, that that will at least uh, on this farm provide for enough yeah compost to uh, to put on all all our land. Um, but let's see. This is also again an experiment uh, that we're in at the moment.
0: So there's an interesting question here also around generational approaches to farming, which comes up often in conversation when I'm chatting with people and you know, from a position of very little knowledge, which I have, um, the question that often comes up is, well, you know, we didn't used to, we being generationally, a few generations back, we didn't used to use pesticides because they didn't exist. People didn't talk about them. They were just animals and the compost would come directly from the animals themselves who were roaming the land. Um, So, you know, we should trust these older methods of farming. And there's almost like this romanticised idea of what that looked like that doesn't take into consideration the fact that, subsistence farming is very very hard and unpredictable and precarious for people to engage in and this is something that Yona and Alfonso were talking about the other day was you know if someone comes to you and says well we can either give you a large sum of money now and we'll take the land and that maybe pays for your school education for your children and for your pension on an individual level I don't know that I would be able to say in all honesty whether I wouldn't find that very attractive. It's an attractive proposition. And so back to this, this question of money and legacy and changing minds, what's been some of your experience around supporting people to hold on to their land and to be able to keep the traditional methods that continue to work and let go of the ones that are harming the land?
1: Yeah, I think indeed the traditional methods work better in that, in that way. They they were in, in maybe more sustainable up to a certain point when we started using a lot of pesticides and herbicides, of course. But I also do believe that with the tools that we have today, we do need to um, think of ways that we can use the tools of today to become, again, uh, more sustainable. Mm. Because people are not going to go back to uh, a horse cart and, uh, you know, a plow behind a cow. Yeah. In the end, that's just not going to happen. Um, with reason. <laughs> but, um, and for example, the terraces that we had here in the area, they've all been taken out. Hmm. Because tractors, uh, for tractors, it was easier to, to uh, till the land without all those terraces. Oh. I know many other areas that still have them and I think it's it's a great uh, way of, of, of stopping erosion and, and capturing as much water as you can. But here in this area that was was taken out. So also one way that we thought, okay, how can uh, we still capture water and stop erosion but in a way that functions also with this current um, yeah, methods, we are using so the tractors and and the machines and so that's when the swills uh came up uh, and we tried to implement those and those are actually easy to implement with the tractor uh you don't need uh well you need a a gps a laser or something uh to to make them and then you can do with the tractor and um you can easily also fix them up with the tractor if you need to um if they break down or whatever. And that for people is a lot easier to manage than a terrace because a terrace is, is a lot of manual labor, a lot of work. Uh, every rain you have to also check them, maybe they break down and, and that is um a bit more challenging let's say than than mm. than implementing a swill. So I think we, we need to kind of use the, the ideas and the tech and the ways that have been used before but update them to what the availability of tools is that we have now mm.
0: so then all of this work which is 24 7 on a farm like you don't really get a weekend in the way that most of us can just log off from our laptops or come home from the office all of this work is intensive and it requires a huge amount of not only physical labor but planning Uh, There's a lot of admin involved, especially if you're educating people. There's a huge amount of research one needs to do. So, how do you find rest and avoid burnout when this is such an all you're grinning at me, (laughs) an all-consuming job? I mean, it's how how do you find rest and avoid burnout? I think we find a lot of rest in in work of the land. Ah, Interesting. So,
1: when we go into the vegetable garden and we have a nice uh, morning there, we do some work there. We. Uh, have a, a shower under the waterfall, and <laughs> that that is our rest also and yes it is it is work, but many of the things that we do on the farm they don 't feel hmm. uh, as work they feel as part of our life so indeed, many people they're done with work at six or seven or whatever and and that 's it, but indeed, in our case that's that's not really yeah it doesn 't really work like that, but on the other hand, when it rains. We have it very (laughs) calm and quiet or when it snows, there is no work. So I think the whole concept of how we work, that it's nine to five or nine to six and then, you know, that's it. You go and sit behind your laptop and and you work. Uh, We don't do that. Mm. You know, We, we do work when there is work. And if there's no work, you don't have to
0: work. That sounds so good. <laughs> um,
1: or when you cannot work, you know, when it's snowing, uh, the tractors cannot work, so they are, have a day off. Uh, when it's raining a lot, they cannot work. So I think it's also, we, I had to change this mindset a bit because I came from the Netherlands where I did do this type of work that was a nine to six computer related job. So in the beginning, I always felt a bit uh, guilty when... Mm. You know, it was a few rainy days and I just did not have work. And I was like, oof, now I have to sit behind my computer and and do things, you know. (laughs) But then at some point I was like, but why? You know, like because other days in the summer when the harvest is happening... We're busy in the weekends. We're busy in the nights. Then the cows escape. I have to get out of my bed. Uh, so why should I now sit down and behind my computer all day to pretend to be working on something that I don't really need to do at this moment? So it's a change of looking at the time and looking at also looking at weekends. Uh, maybe you don't have a like a weekend like you're used to, but. Yeah, then there's other days that are, are more relaxed. So mm. I, I don't feel at all like burning out. I feel I get a lot of energy from being outside and enjoying this lifestyle that is a lot less stressful in a way because it's more based on, on, on seasons, it's more based on, on on the weather. So I think that, that brings me a lot closer also to nature.
0: Mm. What an amazing answer. It's true because actually even... I've been thinking about this a lot recently, kind of, especially when I spent time away from my laptop, coming back to it feels really, especially when it's for work or for emails, which is the worst, it feels really dreadful. Like I get this this sense of creeping physical dread. I'm thinking, isn't this interesting? Like This this isn't something that I engage in for hours and hours every day. I have other things that I do and I give talks. It's a bit of a different kind of activity than just sitting and staring at a screen. But it's... um, our notion of work and it being something which is costly to us, to our well-being more than anything else, I would say. Maybe that's just my mental state where I am now when I'm thinking about work. I mean, it can also be very stimulating and creative and exciting, but there's an interesting reason why we try to contain our work within certain hours. Or, for instance, the four-day work week, people saying, well, for well-being, we need to spend time less time in the week working and more time resting. Whereas if you're in an endeavour where... You're not tied to a screen, you're out, you're getting fresh air, just very basic things. And also with people, because a, a big part of what you do is community-based, that you actually are developing and growing a community at La Junquera. Let's ask a little bit about that. Like, what's it like building a community with all of the beauty and difficulties that that involves? Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's been an interesting journey. Uh-huh. Because in the, in the beginning, uh, five and a half years ago, when I came here, it was just me and Alfonso. Um, and there was one worker living in another house on the farm. So it was literally just <laughs> us, like 24-7. Um, oh, wow. And, and then we, um, we worked with the ecosystem restoration camp to start the first camp with volunteers on the farm. And then uh, more and more people came in. And that was quite crazy because in the beginning, they lived in our house. Oh, wow. (laughs) And it was, yeah, it was, it was also hard to put boundaries because in the, in the beginning, beginning, that's a lot of fun. And you're like, oh, people, yes, nice. And then at some point you're like, oh, I would like to also sit on my couch instead of having three really big guys sitting there, uh, (laughs) gaming. Uh yes, in the beginning, uh we, we also had some trouble setting our boundaries um because we had so many yeah. people coming over and visiting and uh that was all really fun. Uh but then at some point we had zero space for ourselves. Um so mm. I think the moment we started setting a bit more boundaries for ourselves, it became also easier and more fun to be with other people and when people had we were building more houses uh, rebuilding actually and then people had their own space people had their own houses people had more independence and little by little every year we could build a house and we could grow and there was more demand also from people that said like hey i would love to stay here i would love to start this or help with this or work on this so at some point it started to move more organically uh, and then we had students coming and they stayed uh, for four months because for us it was important uh, that they would stay for a bit of a longer period so they would understand really well what's going on and uh, we could also connect with them a lot better than if they would come for only a week. Yeah. So slowly, uh, little bit by little bit, we uh, we changed and we, we made it in a way that it was very workable for us as well and um, so people could have a really good experience we could have a good experience and now we are at a point that um, there's 10 people or 12 people full-time living here Um, so they have their jobs they have their house they have their space and they they are independent people and then we have students that uh, come and go and at the ecosystem restoration camp uh, there are some uh, Uh, spaces for people to sleep so we've uh, divided it in a way that uh, the village is really a village for long-term people and then the other spaces are more for short-term people and that also gives us uh, a bit more peace (laughs) it's a bit easier to manage and that also gives us more time to zoom out at the end of the day and um, in the beginning it was a lot more like we were the mom and dad of literally everybody Yeah, that's (laughs) that's very full on. And now we are just a community of people that all have their responsibilities, that all have their uh, lives, and um, we are all more equal. And that, I think, is very nice. And that also means that when we are gone for a couple of weeks on holidays or whatever, it doesn't all stop. Mm. So it doesn't only depend on us anymore, which I think is super important because then, you know, only something has, has to happen and, and, and everything falls. And now I think we're at a point that if we uh, would not be there for certain times of the year, it would still continue and it would still move and it would still live and it would still grow. So I'm actually very happy with what where we are at the moment um, and we are doing it in a way that, that feels comfortable for everyone and it's not too fast, not too big a, all at once Um, yeah yeah it's a it's an interesting experience
0: (laughs) but that point about it not being too big too quickly I think also and figuring out that there needs to be boundaries and a sense of uh, longer term deeper rooted community that is the village and then separate outlying projects I guess it's clearly a very thoughtful approach because I think it's very easy to kind of have these romantic ideals about living in community, but the the reality of community life is that it's a lot more complex. And if you're going to share things equally in terms of responsibilities, that means that people have to be empowered to make decisions, but that also benefit the group as well as the individual. So it becomes a really interesting way of living that many of us are no longer accustomed to.
1: No, I think it's also quite interesting because uh, we have two little kids and they are also really part of uh, of everybody's house, let's say. So my little one just walks in someone's house and takes a, a, some food and then sits on someone's lap and then t- plays. And then it's like, where is Elena? And then someone in the group answers, oh, she's in my house. Oh, <laughs> she's that playing. Sounds so nice. <laughs> uh, and that is very nice. It's, it's, it's a very, I think because we did it in a way that everybody really has their own house, their own space. Yeah. But there are... Uh, it's very easy to have lunch together eat together Um, and then there are certain activities that everybody participates in like the vegetable garden because it's only for the village we say okay everybody that wants to eat from the vegetable garden has to make it grow basically
0: yeah
1: Um, so we in the summers uh, we work all in the vegetable garden and then when the apples are ready, we all harvest apples mm. and we all drink the apple juice and the cider and uh, <laughs> when the vineyards uh, need to be harvested, we all help to 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 make that uh, to make the wine and uh, we have fun while doing it. so I think the the combination between your personal space and the and the public space and 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 being having enough activities together to to feel uh, connected, but also having enough space for yourself to to rest and to to be alone if you need to. I think that that seems to work quite well at the moment.
0: So, I mean, I could keep asking you questions, but coming to the end of the conversation, so I want to ask you, when things go wrong at the farm or when there's a massive loss of a thousand trees or someone tills the hedges that you've meticulously laboured over and looked after, how do you keep a sense of hope alive? Do you ever have times where you just think, oh my gosh, What am I doing this? What, what is this all for? And then if yes, how do you answer that question? How do you keep yourself going?
1: Uh, I think there's a few elements to it. So I think one is
0: you have to keep the fun
1: in it. Uh, so when something like that happens, you can either cry or laugh. <laughs> sometimes you cry, sometimes you laugh. And, and, and you have to think that this is such a big thing you're changing that uh, you do have to do it together and, and everybody is learning. So I think there's a lot of something my dad always says, like learning money involved. Oh, yeah, leegeld. <laughs> leegeld, <laughs> yes. So a lot of the things that we do are, are, are learning experiences for many people. And that's just the way it is, you know, and hopefully people do learn and that it doesn't have to happen a second time. But, yeah, I, I, I do think the second part of it is, is being with other people so when one of us loses hope, there is a, a network, a community of people that will catch up this person and say, hey, you're having a bad day. Here you have a cup of tea and a chocolate. Tomorrow will be a better day. Let's, you know, have some nice time together and, and think about something else or let's go out or, you know, the world is not only this. And I think that really helps. Like, I think if we would have had to do it all alone, it wouldn't be that easy. It wouldn't be that fun and it would also not be so easy to get out of maybe a negative vibe when something goes wrong. I think now, you know, something goes really wrong, like we lose the harvest because of the frost, but then after that, I don't know what, we have a dinner all together and we look at each other and and it's like, hey, but we created all of this, you know, and this is working and people do want to be part of this and I think that really helps to, to, to keep the hope up and uh, that you're doing it together.
0: Beautiful. Well, Yannick, if people want to find out more about your work, about La Junquera and the Regeneration Academy, where are the best places for them to find you?
1: Yes. Uh, so we, are, we have a website of the, the farm of uh, lajunquera.com. Uh, we have a website of the academy, which is regeneration uh, org. And then we have an Instagram in which we kind of post a bit of everyday life. <laughs> and it's also, it's La Conquera. So um, I think with any of those, you, you, you will find out a lot more about us. And I think also what the Academy has is on the website is the, the researches of the students, which is really interesting. So if you want to learn a bit more in depth about certain insects or about certain activities that we do, then, uh, then those are great for, uh, for learning more. Brilliant, thank you so much. Thank you. It was really nice to to speak to you again.
0: (laughs) Likewise. Thank you for listening to the Hive Podcast with me, Natalina High. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and review as it helps to reach new ears. And for more information, you can visit natalinahigh.com forward slash podcast, and you can also reach out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn at natalinahigh. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.